So I'm delighted uh, to, uh, as I was saying before, we, we kept the, the best for last in a way. Um, this is a great, uh, it has been a wonderful two-day experience. I would like to express my public thanks to our partners, DNB for uh, helping with the uh, heavy lifting of this conference. Uh, we have great uh, attendance and above all, tremendous insight during those two days. And we are now closing with a panel. It, it's a new direction. Uh, it is, the panel is on offshore wind energy and emerging frontier. Um, and uh, this is one of the new areas, the new topics. Uh, and we're delighted to, to have a great panel with us. I will uh, turn it over to Jim. Um, also, I'd like to thank uh, Scorpio for, uh, you know, brainstorming with us and uh, helping us put this together. Of course, uh, Siri and Rune, thank you for being with us. And to Jim, who has been instrumental uh, putting this panel together and the whole conference. So Jim, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you. Um, wind, and obviously we'll be talking about offshore wind, but wind is one of the most stable sources of renewable energy and the cost efficiencies are rapidly improving. By 2030, Equinor's goal is that floating wind will be cost competitive with other forms of energy. And also by 2030, we at DNB believe there'll be more than 10,000 new turbine installations globally. It is my pleasure to introduce senior management of three companies that are pioneers in the development of off offshore wind. First of all, from Equinor, Siri Espendal Kingdom, uh, president of Equinor Wind US, and prior to that, she was head of renewables in Equinor's new energy solutions division. Uh, from Scorpio, David Morant, managing director and uh, a, a leader within that organization in terms of their, their entrance into the wind space. He has spent most of his 20-year career as a portfolio manager at a few different uh, London-based hedge funds. And 20 years ago, David and I had the privilege of working together at JP Morgan. And then Runa Magnus Lundetray, executive chairman of OHT. Uh, Runa formerly has been a CFO and CEO in the offshore drilling industry. And half a dozen years ago, uh, Rune and I had the pleasure of working together at DNB when he worked on the dark side. Um, I'm going to give each of these speakers up to five minutes to talk about their business and talk about their business plans um, and ambitions going forward, starting with Siri. Thank you. Thank you, and um, good to see you all. I'm very excited to be here today. So thank you also to Capital Link and DNB for putting this event together. So my name is Siri Espelakindem, and I am the president, president of Equinor Wind US. And my responsibility then includes social wind portfolio throughout the US East Coast. That of course is then including the Empire Wind. It's the 860 megawatt project off the coast of Long Island and our newest project, Beacon Wind, which is the coast of Long Island and Massachusetts. So I've had various roles within Equinor. 
including recently, the most recently job I had before this was I, I was actually heading up all the offshore oil and gas installation in, in the Norwegian and Barents Sea. The, the job called was Operation North. But previously, before that, I was heading up renewables when Equinor was more in the startup phase of that kind of business. So during my career, I led you know, operations, investment strategies, technology and development for, for numerous projects. So I'm very enthusiastic to be here today and discuss, discuss the dynamics of this industry and not at least talk about the global footprint and the future of offshore wind. So firstly, I would like to state that these projects, these offshore wind projects are big projects. So when speaking about renewables, some of you might think about the, and be more familiar with the onshore wind projects. And while some of these issues we have building out these big offshore wind projects are the same, there are many aspects regarding size, scale, timeline, and marine logistics and operations that are unique to offshore wind. So that is always an important point to make. So that's also one of the reasons Equinor, you know, as an offshore energy leader, is so well positioned to take full advantage of this new industry, now also in the US. So our project in the US will then be a part, a big part of Equinor's realizing its ambitions, not only on the US East Coast, but also globally. So this is a pivotal time when we're growing in this industry. But while we now are in this virtual setting, I understand that New York focus for this conference is also a presence. And that fits very well with Equinor's ambitions on the US East Coast. Empire Wind, our most mature project in the US, is located between 16 and 20 miles of Long Island. We were awarded a contract last year for the state to provide power to New York. So this will have many benefits to the states, including jobs, economic commitments to local communities. And we're very proud of our dedication to local communities and our commitment to the states. So we very much feel that we are a partner with the state of New York and will be there for many years to come. So thank you. And David, why don't you take us through Scorpio's plans and ambitions? Thank you, Jim, and uh, thank you very much for having me uh, to Capital Inc. and also to DNB for organizing the panel. Um, I've been with the company for about five years, and four of those years have been taken up with uh, strategic evaluation of the wind space. Um, it's something we've looked at extremely carefully and in many parts of the value chain. And finally, on the night of August the 3rd this year, we announced probably one of the most significant transformations, I think, um, and there may be others uh, attending today who have uh, different examples, but certainly the most dramatic transformation of any listed uh, public shipping stock that I've seen, which was the decision to transform ourselves wholly and entirely from being a very high quality, mid-sized dry bulk company to a company which is entirely focused on ordering the next generation of wind turbine installation vessels. Now, why do we do that? Really, there are three reasons. And I think the first is that we believe in what we're doing. And I think Siri has laid out a little bit in her remarks, the strength of the growth of this market and why we believe it's the right place for us to invest our shareholders' capital and our management expertise. 
The second reason we've done it is that we believe it moves our company to a materially higher, more durable, and more predictable level of shareholder return. And the third reason that we've done it is because we think with the eight and a half thousand people across the firm of Scorpio, with the billions of dollars that we've raised in export credit and on the US capital markets, that we are very well placed to build a global leader in this industry. And I should add, and then I'll, I'll hand, it, hand it back to you, Jim, that you know, for us, the US market and its recent embrace of green energy is just the beginning. The US is our home. It's where we raise equity. It's where our senior executives are based. Um, and for us, this transition and the ability that Scorpio has to play a major role in Europe, in Asia, and also in the has just started to embark upon. And I'll hand that back to you, Jim. Thank you. And Runa Magnus. Yeah. Take Thank us you. through OHT's plans. Thank you, I will. Uh, so my name is uh, Runa Magnus Lundetroy. I'm the executive chairman of OHT. Um, Thank you for having me, and I'm excited to, to present um, uh, the OHT story. Um, so we are um, an offshore wind transportation and installation company. Um, we have certainly transitioned into renewables from, from the oil and gas industry as well. The company uh, was formed some 20 years ago, um, but we have a few years ago made uh, a conscious uh, change uh, into the renewable space. We currently have, uh, or I can just say, um, we current, uh, just listed on the uh, Merkur market here in Oslo uh, two weeks ago, uh, raising $60 million. So we are now a publicly listed company uh, here in Oslo. Um, we had uh, five uh, heavy uh, transportation vessels um, before they have uh, done most of the business to the oil and gas industry. But already this year, uh, some 60% of the EBITDA is now related to the renewable space. In 2018, um, Arne Blüster, who's the main uh, or largest shareholder of OHT, um, they ordered a, uh, a foundation installation vessel, purpose-built. It's called Alpha Lift One. Um, that is now uh, being constructed and will be delivered uh, approximately 12 months from now. And we'll go straight into the Dogger Bank project once that has been delivered or will be delivered. Um, the capital raise that I mentioned that we just did uh, a few weeks ago, that was related to a further growth of the company uh, into the turbine installation uh, segment. Uh, and we, you know, following that capital raise and the listing, we, we placed an order for one turbine installation vessel from China Merchant. Uh, and we also have three more priced options. We also have one more option for, for foundation installation vessels. So I think we have something in common with the two other participants and the two other companies that we are certainly making a transition into renewables. Uh, we are extremely uh, excited about the growth prospects of, of this uh, industry. Um, and I think we are well placed to take a, a role in the supplier chain of, of, of the value chain um, in, in this industry now and also in the years to come. Thank you. Uh, Siri, you, you've told us a little bit about the uh, Empire Project and the Beacon Project. 
Can you talk for a moment about Equinor's plans in terms of geographic expansion? And also help us appreciate just how much more complex this next generation of wind turbines offshore are becoming and, and some of the challenges that you face with that. Okay, so maybe, so maybe we should put up the slide, yeah? Did bring a slide, one slide, that's good. Well, uh, yeah, just to show you uh, the area, you're probably very familiar with this area on the East Coast. So as you see, our focus is currently on the East Coast um, and we are very well positioned, you know, with the, the least location we have, we see the beacon wind outside Massachusetts and, you know, partly Long Island and then also the empire wind. Uh, so they are very strategically located uh, and, you know, empire way strategically located towards the New York State of tech contract and also then beacon wind, you know, very, you know, strategically located and has the ability to provide power throughout, you know, both the, to the New York England market and also into to New York. So uh, I'll just give you a bit more detail maybe on the project. Uh, you know, this is going to get me going, but I, I will give you some, some at least. So, so Empire Win is well on the way of developing the, the Empire One, which we call it the first phase, the 860 megawatt wind phase, uh, wind project. And the off-take contract then is, uh, was a contract that we signed with NYSERDA, our counterpart, uh, the state in 2019. So now uh, we are in a phase of, um, finalizing our total concept for the project, interesting phase. We now also started the procurement process with them um, focusing on developing efficient execution project schedule. And then again, also we need to honor the economic benefits to New York and creating effective permitting processes. So this also means that we are, um, you know, uh, uh, the procurement activities we are, have ongoing is of course then extremely important in this phase. So we're now, uh, you know, in that phase, we're looking at the, the, the large manufacturing of large manufacturing items that we need to get in place. And then we are in the phase of the selection of the, the wind turbine, the wind and turbine uh, installer. Of course, then also the power cables and uh, not at least finalizing our electrical system design. So that also will include then the delivery of the high voltage equipment that we will need it. So this is an interesting phase for the project. In addition, we have uh, Empire Phase 2. Uh, and that's also, you know, ongoing planning. That has a capacity, potential capacity of 1.2 gigawatt. And Empire Phase 2 will then, you know, of course, leverage on the learnings from the Empire 1 project development. So just more detail on Beacon Wind as well, um, which is, uh, of course, on New England. New England, we have a potential there of a two gigawatt uh, development. And we are now in the project development phase. So we are then typically doing what you do in this phase, you're doing the geotechnical and geophysical studies, then again, to be able to mature the technical concept of the project, and then are looking for a route to market and off the solution to the various states that we can see in this area. So, you know, as well as this is, you know, we think that the East Coast is a very important market for us. We are also looking for more emerging markets. And then, of course, it's very easy to look for, for the West Coast. Uh, and, you know, California, California is then a very good name to, to mention. Uh, and we think, you know, the, this is also a region that has a great potential 
with a strong market in the future. Siri, can you tell us how much power these two projects will mean to New York and Massachusetts, et cetera? Well, but just think about only the Empire Wind, Wind Phase 1. They will provide around five, you know, power to around 500,000 households. So this is a, this, these are large numbers. These are large projects. And of course, I've tried to describe the large project development. So this is a project that, you know, will make a difference. Uh, Runa, let's talk about the kind of growth rate you expect in offshore wind. What do you expect in terms of foundation, installations, wind turbines? What does the next decade look like in your opinion? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's almost fantasy numbers. When you, when you look at the large research firms, uh, they are, you know, adjusting their projections um, all the time and, and the curve seems to be moving upwards. Uh, having said that, I think we, we try to be uh, <laughs> rational and, and disciplined here um, and take this step by step. Uh, we only have uh, two assets, one foundation and one turbine installation vessel. Um, in addition to the five uh, transportation vessels. Um, we're also reading about the 19,000 foundation and, and turbines to be installed in the next decade. Um, but uh, we're focusing on some of the key clients. Uh, you know, Sirius is obviously one of them, Equinor, um, and also certain geographical, geographical areas. I think if we, if we try to grasp everything at once, I think we, we, we're not going to be successful. So we we are targeting uh, certain areas, certain clients, uh, and of course also the turbine installation companies, um, uh, turbine manufacturers, sorry. Um, and and uh, you know, what we're trying to do is to, to, to provide the assets and the services that these, uh, uh, these guys need. Um, so I'm, you know, we've put money and, and prestige uh, behind this and, and, and really believe that uh, that curve is real. Um, and, uh, that uh, this market is going to grow significantly. And I think this market um, is, is, is a key part of the energy transition. It's happened much faster uh, and, and um, is, is much bigger than I ever um, uh, expected. But it, it's definitely uh, happening as we, as we speak. Uh, and I'm extremely excited about it. So. David, I'd like you to talk about your expectations for the growth rate, but also for the sake of the audience just help them to understand the gap in transportation in terms of where we are today and how much more complicated these new wind farms will be both in terms of the depth of the water they'll be operating in the distance from land the size of the of the wind farms and the size of the turbines so could just once again your growth rate but help the audience understand uh, the gap that that you're trying to fill here Oh, thanks, Jim. It's a great question. And I think sort of top down, it's very clear that you're dealing not only with extremely high rates of growth to the end of the decade. And uh, certainly, if you look at uh, the numbers, as, as Rina Magnus mentioned, I think anything between 15 and 20 percent compound annual growth rate out to the end of the decade is achievable. And again, you know, if I contrast that, you know, coming here as, as Scorpio bulkers, I think a few people said, well, you know, look, you're, you're on the wrong panel. What, what are you doing? 
um, you know, when we look at our stock uh, salts, um, you know, we're really in the foothills of grasping that growth. But the most important thing has been to have our vessels arriving on time, on spec, on budget, right into what we think will be a significant ramp in installation coming in 24, 25, 26. Uh, and Siri and her colleagues and, and some of what's going on on the northeastern seaboard of the US are part of that, uh, a very big part of that. You know, the US has a stated target of around 28 uh, gigawatts of offshore by 2030. Now, if you think about that, just in terms of our market, let's put that in at 14 megawatt turbines, which are the new ones. And I'll come back to that because that's an important point. That's around 2,000 wind turbines that need to be installed to match that target. Uh, around 3,000 vessel days uh, for wind turbine installation uh, vessels just to match that target. The UK, um, uh, the sort of slightly damp uh, rock off the west of Europe that I'm speaking to you from, uh, at the moment, the total installed capacity worldwide is about 29 uh, gigawatts, and the UK is 10 of that. The UK's aspiration is to be nearly 40. Uh, that would imply an acceleration in the rate of turbine installation from one every three days, which is currently where the UK is continuing every single day to install a turbine every three days, to one every single day of every single year out to 2030, just to get within close of that political objective. So then why is that interesting for us? Well, at one level of growth is pretty obvious, but the second part of this is the obsolescence of the on the water fleets. And the reason why that's occurring is just to match the power output that is being projected and the numbers that are being run, you're seeing a step change in the turbine sizes and all of the major turbine manufacturers, GE, MHI Vestas and Siemens Gamesa, um, all of them are have or are about to, in our view, announce significant step changes in their turbine sizes. And that has an implication for vessels and for the supply chain. And it's a, a gap that we can fill. Um, if you look at the three variables that these vessels need, first and most obviously, it's crane hook height. So you're looking at vessels which now need crane hooks, which can be over 160, 165 meters above the water level. Secondly, you need carrying capacity. So you're looking, as you'll have seen from Sirius slide, at fields which are way out into midwater. They're at greater water depth and the transit times between the port and the field is going up. So the ability to carry more nacelles and more blades and give much more operating efficiency to your transit times of your vessel is extremely important. So variable load, in short, the amount you can jack up. Uh, again, when we first look, started looking at this, you know, someone said, as you'd expect, why don't we just take a load of oil and gas jackups and, and reuse them? Well, the simple fact is you're dealing with a completely different vessel. These vessels will jack up up to 50,000 tons every other day. With an oil and, jack up, oil and gas jackup rig, you're looking at a vessel which might jack up once or twice a quarter, maybe once a month if it's lucky. So it's a completely different piece of machinery. So for us, really, the main thing was making sure we got the order right. We knew the question that we were trying to answer, and we're still making sure we've got the questions. We're certainly working on the answers, as I say, but we've been delighted to get the yard slots we've got in Korea. Um, I think the quality that we get out of Korea, the, the, the relationship we have with DSME, uh, we've ordered over a billion three of tonnage out of that yard uh, and making sure that we can get you know, the right vessels on time to the right basins for the customers for this new and significant and really exciting, as you alluded to, growth in turbine installation out to the end of the decade. Thank you. Siri, strategically, how important is offshore wind to Equinor? Well, um, you know, you know, it's becoming a global energy company, and they put up 
you know, like a US East, uh, East Coast cluster. Uh, and that means, you know, that we have a, you know, a hub for offshore wind development at the East Coast. That's the part which I'm leading. I'm lucky to be leading in Equinor. This means that uh, we have, this is US East Coast. It's really a strategic and key priority for the company. And Equinor really plans to have by 2035 to have between 12, 12 to 16 gigawatts installed capacity globally. And that's actually 30 times, you know, what we have up to date. So this really means that the, our delivery into this from the US East Coast is extremely important to develop into a, to a broader energy company. So then again, you know, the re renewable business is really a part of, key part of the company when we're looking forward. And it's also very exciting times these days, because you probably all know that we have a CEO coming very soon. That's going to be very interesting to follow. But I think it's also to note, and I think that's what my, my colleagues on this panel has also mentioned, that um, offshore wind is, 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 is not only new, it's also an extension of our oil and gas business. So it's, uh, it's not like a big step of the existing business, I, I must say. And, uh, and uh, we have, you know, we have 50 years of experience in, in this uh, industry. Uh, and I'm happy to moving a bit back and forth. And uh, that's, you know, a very good start for, for building up in this industry. So then again, we can build on the expertise we have when you're going into offshore wind and working, continue that work. We are, we're financially robust and that's important, if not the least. And, you know, this is also about competitiveness. We need to be competitive on cost. So now when we are putting up this business, which is going to be larger, and it's going to be also larger for us on the East Coast, this means that we also have the scale then and also capability to, to create, you know, not at least the value into the business. So thank you. Thank you. And uh, Runa, talk about some of the challenges. Um, availability of contracts, new build construction risk, access to capital markets, whether it be the debt capital markets, equity capital markets, or, or, or bank lending. Obviously, you've, you're, you're, you're out of your quiet period. You recently raised some equity capital, so you can speak with, uh, with some experience on, on some of these topics. No, I, I think there's, um, there's several um, challenges and, and barriers to entry, but that's also what, you know, give, give us uh, an opportunity. So it's sort of two sides of the same. Uh, thing, um, but if I if I try to sort of group them, I think there is um, uh, a challenge, and, and not in in a bad way or negative way, I would say challenge, but uh, but an opportunity. But uh, people is going to be a barrier to entry, um, you know, in terms of experience in in this industry. Um, it has been uh, more of a narrow uh, market, uh, so there is probably not that much talent. Uh, today uh, but it's certainly going to grow together with the industry but but i would say people and organization is is extremely critical here um and 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 uh the relationships with with the energy companies both the new entrants but also the more established players um i'm happy to say that uh, in oht we have several years now build up that or organization that experience but we are continuing um, to build. So we're not done yet, but at least we have got a good start. And that's also why we were able to get the, the, the contract at Dogger Bank for the Alpha Lift 1. The second part is related to equipment. Um, you know, we, we, we just come out of a, 
of a challenging time in, in other asset heavy industries uh, within the energy business. Um, I think investors and also um, debt providers uh, still have that fresh in mind. Uh, and, and this equipment uh, is you know, large, but also very capital intensive. It's expensive, so you need capital. Um, so I think there are two things. One is what you referred to, the, 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 the equity and the debt markets, are they open? And for how many um, entrants are they open for? But also um, I have sensed uh, a little bit of a different um, conversation with the arts uh, because they also uh, affected by by uh, related cyclical, cyclical industries and they are um, probably more uh, demanding when it comes to payment terms. But it's a good thing, at least for us, because we are one of the first movers. Uh, so we are a little bit out of the woods at least. But, but I think that's going to be a barrier to entry for some, but also uh, an opportunity for, for people like, or companies like OHT, where we have been able to, to move first and, 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 and got the slots, got the capital, and, and now can actually start to accelerate and, and build the organization and, and also participate in, 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 uh, in, in tender processes. Thank you. And David, I'm gonna ask you the same question, but you could also, about the challenges, but you can also think about uh, asset sales as part of your thinking as you uh, expand into this space. Well, thank you, Jim. I mean, I obviously have a lot of sympathy with what Rina Magnus said. I think, you know, our, our biggest challenge right now uh, is execution and we continue to execute. I think uh, many of the sharp-eyed people have seen we announced further vessel sales um, after close last night. I think you'd certainly expect uh, that trend to continue and uh, it's pleasing to see that the stock is is starting to close you know some of the some of the sort of large gap it, it has to its uh, NAV as we realize um, uh, the capital from those sales. I think the other thing that I'd add is clearly um, as an organization we're turning our focus to a part of the uh, shipping segment that we've not historically focused on. There are some fantastic uh, things about that you've, you've got we've got a, an 8,000 person organization we've got uh, people with vast naval experience design experience yard supervision finance experience and I think I can speak for pretty much everyone at Scorpio in, in terms of the excitement there is and the commitment that there is uh, to this transition and, and to making it a reality I think then as, as Rena Magnus said you know relationships with the yards I referenced before uh, the great relationship we've got and we continue to have uh, with DSME and, and, and the Korean shipping complex altogether, which is a very important part of this. And, and getting this vessel uh, delivered to the customer specification, we found uh, a, a, a welcome uh, to new entrants, to well-capitalized, credible um, new entrants like Scorpio coming into this space. We already interact with these companies, um, as, as many people here, most people here will know, we run the world's largest fleet of product tankers, very different business, but it means that the HSEQ culture and the contact that we have at the highest level of these, these organizations is well known. And then it is a matter of getting our new build uh, delivered on time and on budget and contracted. And I said the initial uh, reception we've been receiving uh, there, I think will be uh, has been very heartening the feedback we've received and the partnership in developing the industrial solution that we're bringing to bear uh, for the uh, for the IECs as BP now call themselves um, I think is really is really quite exciting so from our perspective the challenge really is execution 
this is a highly complicated, highly complex piece of industrial machinery, and it's blending that, lastly, I'd say, with the financial solutions. We've raised, uh, over the course of this business, uh, billions of dollars in Korean export finance. Um, it's an area we have significant expertise. Uh, we're a top five uh, global ship, uh, shipping lend customer, ship bank customer, uh, and we're extremely proud of our presence on the New York Stock Exchange and our access to U.S. institutional investors. So I think uh, uh, in the in the early stages, uh, without uh, doing them down, of understanding the magnitude of this shift and the opportunity that the company has ahead of it. Uh, so, it's, if that answers the question, Jim, it's blending all of those things. Thank you, um, Siri. Equinor, and it wasn't, in my view, that many years ago, built the first offshore wind development off the off the coast of Scotland, and and obviously technology has taken things much further. Equinor has come out and said that floating is the future. So as the pioneer in the offshore wind industry, uh, can you talk about how much of the world's power we can expect this industry to, um, to impact, number one? Number two, uh, we got a question as relates to the um, Jones Act, if you could just mention that as well as part of, as part of this. Okay, I'll start with the um, floating wind and I'll talk a little bit about the background before I give you the numbers. So first, uh, you know, pioneer in floating wind. And uh, that means both we, you know, we both have built, but also have in production, you know, wind turbine, floating wind turbines. And I just mentioned Highland Scotland, which is uh, the first wind, first wind float, uh, floating wind farm uh, outside of um, the coast of Scotland, and then we also are in the middle now building a bigger one, the 88 megawatt high wind tampon wind farm, which is also going to have this, you know, interesting thing that is going to be serving the oil and gas installation in the North Sea. So, you know, we are truly, you know, a world leading floating offshore wind developer. And we do expect actually expect this to be the next big breakthrough in renewables due to its numerous benefits, and I'm going to give you some of them. Of course, then, you know, when you get to floating wind, you can capture wind, wind speeds that are stronger and more consistent when you can go further out of the sea. You're moving this kind of water depth constraint, and then you can select the best sites in the world. And you can have higher capacity factors, which is extremely important, because you do have these wind, better wind conditions. And not at least, you can place them almost everywhere. Uh, where it's deeper than 200 feet. And then again, this has opened a lot of post market opportunities. So finally, you know, about 80% of the world offshore wind potential is, is in these water depths. And that's well suited for the very floating, wind floating foundations that are actually, you know, being developed. So consequently, uh, you know, the floating wind is predicted to grow worldwide to approximately 10 gigawatts by 2030 and to over to 250 gigawatts by 2050. And these are big numbers. It's going to be very interesting to see the developments. So on the Jones Act, I don't want really to comment in detail. I just want to say as, as a company, we will of course comply to the regulations, you know, uh, that are present. So that's the only thing I really want to, to, to mention on that part. But it is a valid question, I must say. Um, David, historically, Offshore wind industries um, have had a have had a history of overbuilding. We've seen it um, 
We've seen the offshore, the offshore industry, Jim. You mean rather than offshore wind, or you mean offshore, yeah, offshore industries? Offshore right. industries yep. historically have had a tendency to overbuild, whether it's offshore supply vessels or or alter deep water rigs that Runa knows a little bit about. What's what makes this segment different, and what gives you some of the barriers to entry, please? So it's a it's a great question and obviously one that we've been faced with. And I think in in all candor, Jim, in a way I embrace the question because I think um, we've seen a significant amount of, of hesitancy despite the growth numbers that we've talked about. There's been a hesitancy uh, to invest and build a supply chain. Uh, there's been significant obsolescence and there's been you know, money lost at various stages in the supply chain as this industry has grown in size. So I think, you know, your question really is, you know, is it different this time? Um, I think it is, and I'll give you a few of the reasons. Firstly, you can see the acceleration in growth that I think everyone on this panel has outlined. And when you've got an industry that's growing at that sort of rate, the amount, and, and by the way, tangibly and palpably so, the visibility that people have, and, and as, as Runa Magnus referenced, you know, has only been upgraded really uh, over the course of this year, despite COVID, you've seen further uh, acceleration in the investment in this space, but it's also tangible and perceptible in that we can see um, with a great degree of confidence, uh, the growth of these fields out to the end of the decade. So I would say we have more visibility in many ways than a raw input price driven uh, industry uh, like like oil. The second thing that I'd say is as that growth happens, you're seeing a significant amount of obsolescence of supply. And again, uh, that right now as an entrant is our friend. You know, we feel we can bring, you know, brand new high quality assets uh, into this industry and operate them to the very high standards for which we're known. Uh, with very demanding clients. And all three of those things are barriers to entry. You asked earlier on about, you know, where you order, how you order, how you finance it, how you operate it. And, and I would expect, um, you know, you would see a lot more from us in that area um, over the coming period. And, and finally, the client relationships and, and how the demanding client relationships on HSEQ. This is a, a marine in engineering uh, business, as our, as our global COO said. Uh, earlier this week and uh, we don't doubt the challenge but but others shouldn't either um, we are entirely committed to uh, ensuring that we have a leadership position and that we've got through the gate that was referred to earlier on early and we've got our vessels hitting that water at the, at the right time there are huge opportunities in this industry and there are huge pitfalls of building the wrong technology of obsolescence but of all of the concerns that keep uh, me and keep us awake at night right now, uh, overbuilding is, is not one of them. All right. Uh, Runa, I'm going to ask you the same question because your background in offshore drilling is substantial. Uh, but I also want you to, to talk about the green aspect or the ESG aspect of, of what you're doing and, and what competitive advantages that might give you down the road as you look at the capital markets? Um, no, maybe I can start with your last uh, question then. Um, I think, uh, uh, you know, re reducing um, carbon dioxide is going to be a, a licensed operate uh, for us as a supplier. Um, 
not just uh, when we bid for work uh, with Equinor or with um, uh, Siemens or, or whoever, I think we need to be part of their uh, uh, ESG story as well. And I think that's going to be uh, a demand that the suppliers are part of the, the ESG and, and, and that equation. Um, as you said, we recently raised capital, uh, so we have now uh, a little bit more uh, experience and 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 an input on on what that means for equity investors. Um, it's still, uh, you know, uh, each investor will will have uh, their own way of looking at how you meet that uh, ESG uh, standard. Uh, so it's a, it feels a little bit like it's in the making, but it's certainly something that is is critical. Um, I think it's also going to be important, not just um, uh, on the margins that you're going to pay on, on, on debt, but also the volume of debt and pockets of, of capital available to you. Um, so I think the ESG part is, is really important. And that's also why we have um, prepared the, the vessels and, and tried to make them as green as possible. Um, they will never be um, uh, emission free, uh, but certainly you can invest and put in uh, features that make them at least um, more green and more environmentally friendly. And that's what we have tried to do when we have prepared our specs um, for, for the ships. Um, oversupply, I think there's always a risk in cyclical businesses. This is a, a cyclical industry as well. Uh, we've seen that in the last 20 years within the offshore wind industry as well. Um, uh, but I think the barriers to entry that I mentioned earlier um, the recent experience from from a lot of the investors, you know, uh, owners, uh, shipyards, and so on, um, and and combined with the growth uh, prospects here, would at least remove that risk in the near to medium term. I'm I'm very convinced about that. And then who knows what's going to happen seven, eight plus years from now? Uh, it, it's difficult to predict. But uh, um, being first mover is certainly gonna uh, protect you um, to some degree. Thank you. And Siri, can you talk about the challenges that you expect to face uh, with your projects, the technology, the logistics, the supply chain? And when you finish answering that, if uh, there was one question that came up on the uh, screen about uh, wind farm projects in the Mediterranean. So if you could just sort of tack that in to uh, the, t the end of that, that'd be great. And I'm getting the messages that uh, we've used up our time, but uh, we'll steal another minute or two. Siri, are you there? Siri's, Siri's on mute. You understand this is the end of the session. So, yep. <laughs> oh, you, you asked <laughs> so this me about is it. No, 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 no I'll, I'll try. So you asked me about challenges, well, uh, you know, I'll turn it around and I'll talk about opportunities. And thereby, you know, there's a lot of opportunities in technology. And I just remember that, you know, last time I worked with Ubers, we were on the less than four megawatt turbines. And now, you know, I left, it was like six, and now we're into the double digit number. So technology is developing. I'm always very technology optimist. Uh, and um, and also, you know, this also this is not about only project development technologies. It's also about permitting, extremely important. And I think the permitting work is getting along, and um, we very much see ourselves as you know as a, as a partner uh, in in the work we do both towards the federal and the state agency. Not least, this is also about stakeholder management, and uh, 
we have a lot of outreach to fishing communities and um, which is really a key stakeholder for us, you know, in working in Oxygen. And we, you know, have a lot of discussions and dialogues and feedbacks. And we have in fact adjusted the lay of the sign due to the to better accommodate the fishery. So um, so this is about you know really driving the transition. And uh, you know, you probably have seen you know who the players are in this uh, industry, and you know, very happy to be part of a partnership, strategic partnership now with BP. And, uh, and that's just going to be a very good partner for us. So that's also part of the development we're going to see that there are partnership and, and for us it's a partner that has bought into our asset, but we're going to have more collaboration with them also in addition to that. So this is very much recognizing the, the value you know, we have in this industry when we are going forward. And then the, quest, the last question was on uh, Mediterranean. Yes, well, yes. we are looking for opportunities. I don't want to comment concretely on the Mediterranean assets, but you know, we, we will look for possibilities both in the, um, you know, in the US and, and, and of course then we have the UK and we have general Europe, but also we are working in emerging markets. Thank you very much. And I want to thank the panel very much for spending their time with us this afternoon. And Nicholas, I know we went a few minutes over, but I'll turn it over to you. Well, I would like to turn it over to Ted, actually, who is the conference chairman. I hope he will uh, turn on his camera. Uh, Jim, thank you very much. Uh, Siri, David, and Rune, this has been a very interesting discussion, obviously, on, uh, on a new topic, on a new direction. Um, and uh, you got uh, a lot of questions indicative of the interest. Uh, on the topic. So thank you to everybody and uh, please uh, thank you Jim for the moderation. Ted, you are the conference chairman, our partner. I'd like to thank you for uh, all your uh, help and contribution. I think it's been a great event, but you take over and I'll, t I'll take over, Nicholas, uh, very gladly and, and, and very briefly, um, because I, I'm, I'm sure uh, I'm sure people are paying attention to to the panels today and yesterday. Um, uh, which I think have been have been excellent, uh, great content. I, th I think we we ended on a really interesting note uh, with 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 the offshore wind uh, development, uh, a bit of a look into the future, um, and and you know maybe 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 it's not really the future, maybe it's now, uh, like 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 it is uh, with the issues of decarbonization that we 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 spent a fair amount of time talking about during this conference as well. The, the, these issues are are now. Uh, and 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 it's 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 encouraging and and uh, extremely interesting to see the the commitment the collective commitment of of, of all the people who who were presenting and, and and part of these panels and discussions, you know, to 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 reaching the the various objectives and and goals and and, and growth ambitions um, that, that 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 they have and, and that are and, and that are being mandated. So um, I think it's been a terrific two days. Um, I think the um, Thanks go to you, Nicholas, and, and, and your team again for, you know, the very, I think, smooth uh, technical uh, uh, setup here uh, that, that, that has made it very easy to, to, to move in, to move out. Um, uh, the one-on-one -on -one meetings have been a significant success. We've had good volume there, good investor interest. And, um, yeah, again, I want to thank everybody who's participated in, in the forum. Uh, both as 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 attendees, uh, and certainly our participants and, and panel participants, who uh, who I think have done a great job, and and I really like the format. We 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 created some I think some new variations 
in, in, in how we presented issues and, 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 and I think it was effective and, and, uh, and frankly entertaining. Um, so uh, thank you all and, and, and thanks again to Capital Link. We, we enjoy this partnership. Thank you everyone. Thank you very much. Yes.